Father, we give you praise and honor and glory this morning, Lord, for who you are. You are the great king above all kings, the God of all days, the God over all kingdoms, for all thrones on this earth. The God that this message was spoken of, Lord, almost 400 years ago. The God who we worship this morning. And so, we, Lord, Lord, we ask that you would quicken our minds and quicken our hearts, Lord, to receive this word uh, once again, Lord Jesus, as a remembrance to your faithfulness, as a remembrance to the government that you set up, Lord Jesus, a government that was on your shoulders, Lord, for the vision of foretold of a kingdom that would come, Lord Jesus, that would be built on your shoulders. So, Lord, we look to our fathers of old, Lord God, in remembrance this morning to glean, Lord, what we can from the knowledge of those that went before through perilous times, Lord Jesus, to seek a place of freedom and of new society, to raise up their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and to teach the truth unto them, Lord Jesus, the things that would usher in the kingdom of God. And Lord, if there's any way that I could portray that this morning, I pray that you would do so through this text. Lord, and uh, we do these things, and I say these things for your glory alone. get right into it here because I did a run through this morning to Jamie and uh, <laughs> it was pretty, uh, this is pretty in intense, um, but it's been a lot of fun. Um, I'll give just another, a little bit of a brief history of who John Winthrop was. Um, he was born in 1587, died 1649. He was a wealthy Puritan, in, a Puritan. he was an English lawyer. One of the leading figures in the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, which is one of the first settlements, is actually, the, I, I believe, the first settlement after the Plymouth Colony when the Pilgrims landed in, in, uh, at Plymouth Rock in 1620, so it was about 10 years after that. They, they were coming. He was leading um, a group uh, of migrants, those, receiving, those wishing for religious freedom and also uh, economic prosperity as well. They... They saw that uh, they saw what America or the the vision of this new land. If we were going to build a new society based on these principles, upon the principles of God's word, then it would have to be prosperous as well and be able to support. And that's a big part of what John Winthrop was doing um, was going there for commerce. And so a, a, a good portion of this text uh, that he wrote was based on that. Uh, principles of debt and lending and forgiveness, love, brotherly love one towards another. And uh, his intent was to prepare the people for planting a new society in a perilous environment. So, I mean, imagine ourselves, we're on board ship. He spoke this on board ship. They weren't exactly sure if it was right before they left or during the voyage over from England. Um, but it was on board the ship called the Arabella, which I believe means answered prayer. And uh, so he uses some, some uh, timely metaphors in here about shipwreck and other things. I'm sure that kind of got people a little worked up along the way. But imagine ourselves receiving persecution in some form or another, not being able to fully um, uh, govern ourselves in a society based on the principles of God's word in that persecution and then just taking off several thousand miles across the Atlantic on a couple of ships, and we're like, all right, we're going to land on the coast, and what do we do now? So, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. It's absolutely nuts to think about what they were doing. And so this message was foundational to that. He's like, okay, we're going to land. How then shall we live? What are we, we going to do? And what, what will be the foundation of uh, this society? Um, I'll read one more text. Uh, Aaron alluded to this when he was speaking, just to underscore the importance of teaching these words uh, to our children. And this is uh, Psalm 78, 1 through 13. Give ear, O my people, 
to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in, in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, telling to the, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works, which he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, that the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And then he goes, I'll stop there. That's verse seven. I'll stop there. But he goes on to give a whole chapter full of examples of how they rejected it and the judgments that were wrought upon them because of such transgressions. And so that, I think, was part of what John Winthrop was getting at here. Uh, one thing you might notice here is I probably won't look up a whole lot because I am reading most of this. And uh, if I, I'll try to look up as much as I can and give some summary of some of the things he says so it doesn't get too confusing because the way that these guys would preach and speak in this time, sometimes you'd have an in one sentence would encompass an entire paragraph of what we're used to today, and it can be hard to follow. And so hopefully from my study, we'll, um, and the help of Ken too, we'll be able to kind of decipher what he was saying here. So here we go. It is on board ship, ready to set sail here. God Almighty in his most wise and holy providence hath so disposed of the condition of mankind as in all times some must be rich, some poor, some high and eminent in power and dignity and others mean and in submission. He was talking about two stations in life and in, uh, economically that uh, God has ordained. Some that would be rich and some in poor, some that were able to provide for themselves, others not. And what was our responsibility to one another? Because that was a reality of what they were going to. Some of them were rich. He was a wealthy guy. Many of them were not. But what was our responsibility to survive together as a society? He gave three reasons. The first, the first to hold conformity with the rest of his world, being delighted to show forth the glory of his wisdom and the variety and difference of his creatures and the glory of his power in order that all these differences for the preservation and good of the whole and the glory of his greatness, that as it is in the glory of princes to have many officers, so, as, so this great king will have many stewards, counting himself more honored in dispensing his gifts to man by man than if he did it by his own immediate hands. So what he was explaining here was God's glory is magnified through the diversity of how he provides economically for us through each other and out of stewardship to one another and stewardship to his word. There are examples everywhere we look in the world and in our own lives, obviously, of this. Ken and I were talking about, you know, we had manna in the wilderness provided to the children of Israel. They had nothing. All of a sudden, food started raining from heaven. So there's a provision there. You had even the in almost incomprehensible riches of the kingdom of Solomon. If you do the math on some of the amount of gold and silver and the riches that, came, that the Lord blessed his kingdom with, it was just phenomenal to the point we have never seen it like that before today um elisha and the widow's jar of oil that never ran dry god provided food for elijah by ravens flying through the sky to come bring it to him to bring him sustenance even in my own life the lord somehow provided food clothing and shelter for nine children and two parents of somewhat menial income you know, and so in other words, Winthrop was saying that God's provision in every station of life provides innumerable opportunities to appreciate his glory. So whether rich, whether poor, all of his provision is evident. So <clears throat> second reason, secondly, that he might have more occasion to manifest the work of his spirit first upon the wicked in moderating and restraining them so that the rich might not, or the rich and mighty should not eat up the poor, nor the poor and despised rise up against and shake, shake off them, as in the great ones, their mercy, uh, gentleness, love, temperance, etc. And, and in the poor and inferior sort, their faith, patience, obedience, etc. This reason, though it's kind of a run-on sentence there, 
I think what he was trying to do is show the disparity of differences in the means of how God provides and how it gives a greater opportunity to manifest and show forth the work of his spirit first in restraining the wickedness and greed of the rich or the poor. So and then uh, we have our third reason. Thirdly, that every man might have need of others and from hence they might all be knit more nearly together in the bonds of brotherly affection. From hence it appears plainly that no man is made more honorable than another or more wealthy, etc., out of any particular or singular respect to himself, but for the glory of his creator and the common good of the creature man. Therefore God still reserves the property of these gifts to himself. As in Ezekiel 16, 17, he there calls wealth his gold and his silver. And in Proverbs 3, 9, he claims their service as his due, Honor the Lord with thy riches, etc. All men being thus, by divine providence, that's key, by divine providence ranked into two sorts, rich and poor. He's saying that is ordained of God. Under the first um, are comprehended as such as are able to live comfortably by their own means, duly improved, and all others are poor according to their former disposition. So Winthrop is saying here, and exhorting them, that the differences in economic stations being rich or poor among them, those are, that are on board ship here, are ordained by God and also remind us that the true unity is to be found in spiritual things, not, the, not just the material. And he gets into that um, because all riches and honor belong to the Lord and how he deals them out amongst his called is how he sees fit. And then it's our responsibility to steward those things, being either rich or poor, in how we lend, how we forgive, how we receive debt. Okay, now uh, let's move on. He, uh, John Winthrop now addresses how we are called to walk towards each other in this new society. We're here. We're going to set up homes, encampments. What do, how are we supposed to walk? And the, he laid out two rules whereby, whereby we are to walk one towards another, and those are justice and mercy. These are always distinguished in their act and in their object, yet may they both concur in the same subject in each respect, as sometimes there may be an occasion of showing mercy to a rich man in some sudden danger or distress, and also doing of mere justice to a poor man in regard of some particular contract. So what he's saying is that justice and mercy apply both to the rich and to the poor among them. There is I think what he's trying to do is pull away any segregation they may have and figure out how do we survive as a unit in this, in this society? How do we come together, pool our resources, and uh, survive for the glory of Christ? There is likewise a double law by which we, are regula- which we are regulated in our conversation towards one another. In both the former respects, the law of nature and the law of grace, that is the moral law or the law of the gospel, to omit the rule of justice is not properly belonging to this purpose. Otherwise, then, it may fall into consideration in some particular cases. By the first of these laws, man, as he was enabled, so withal is commanded to love his neighbor as himself. Upon this ground stands all precepts of the moral law, which concerns our dealings with men. To apply this to the works of mercy, this law requires two things. And I'm going to get into a little bit more here, a little uh, summary on the differences between the moral law and natural law in a minute here that he's speaking of. First, that every man may afford to help his help to another or offer his help to another in every want or distress. Secondly, that he perform this out of the same affection which he makes uh, him careful of his own goods, according to the words of our Savior from Matthew seven twelve. Whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, this was practiced by Abraham and Lot in entertaining the angels and the old man of Gibeah. The law of grace or the law of gospel hath some difference from the former natural law, as in these respects. First, the law of nature was given to man in the estate of innocence. This of the gospel of the estate. Uh, of the gospel in the state of regeneracy. So what he's saying is the law of nature, which overarches over all of God's creation, 
is over all men, but, the, but we as believers are held to account and receive the law of the gospel upon regeneracy or upon salvation. So we are held to a different standard. As believers, we are called to a higher standard to understand his law and therefore apply it to society and to our lives. Secondly, the former propounds one man, propounds or offers for discussion one man to another as the same flesh and image of God. This as a brother in Christ also, and in the communion of the same spirit, and so teacheth, teacheth to put a difference between Christians and others, do to all, especially to the household of faith, do good to all, especially the household of faith. Upon this ground, the Israelites were to put a difference between the brethren of such as were strangers, though not of the Canaanites. Thirdly, the law of nature would give no rules for dealing with enemies, for all are to be considered as friends in the state of innocence. But the gospel commands love to an enemy. Proof, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. Love your enemies. Do good to them that hate you. Matthew 5.44. That can be kind of a confusing discourse there, but what he's getting at is when he's laying out the difference between natural law and the law, what he calls, what Winthrop calls the law of grace, he shows how natural law, though it is a reflection of God's authority over all nature, as in his characters reflected in nature, all things subsist through him, by him, for him. And that should be a reflection of that, but it is in still insufficient to instruct the believer fully and those of us who are called as his elect on the specifics and the scope of his, what he calls the law of the gospel. So we need the specifics. The law of nature would say, you're going to have enemies, or there, you may have enemies in this life. The law of grace tells us how are we instructed to deal with them. And so that is the specifics that he's telling his congregation on board ship. This is the law that we must follow as believers, the higher standard. Okay. This law of the gospel propounds or offers for discussion, likewise a difference of seasons and occasions. There is a time when a Christian must sell all and give to the poor, as they did in the apostles' times. There is a time also when Christians, though they give not all yet, must give beyond their ability, as they did in Macedonia in 2 Corinthians 8. Likewise, community of perils, or what he's talking about, the survival of the society, or, um, yeah, survival of the society, the community of perils, as he called it, calls for extraordinary liberality, and so doth community in some special service for the church. And so he was, I, I believe he was exhorting there that our call to the community to uphold the Christian society for our very survival would necessarily require great liberality in, in our willingness to help each other as a society to survive in this new world, in this new society. Lastly, when there is no other means whereby a Christian brother may be relieved in his distress, we must help him beyond our ability rather than tempt God in putting him, putting him upon help by miraculous or extraordinary means. The duty of mercy is exercised in the kinds of giving, lending, and forgiving. And we're going to go through a few of the questions such as how or what rules shall a man observe in giving in respect to the measure? How much do we give? Well, the answer is in the time and occasion, if the time and occasion be ordinary, he is to give out of his abundance. Let him lay aside as God hath blessed him. If the time and occasion be extraordinary, he must be ruled by them, taking his withal that then a man cannot likely do too much, especially if he may leave himself and his family under probable means of comfortable subsistence. And what he's saying there, as long as the family or the giver's family is provided for, then we are called beyond that, beyond that what we have extra to, uh, to help others and to bless society. But there was always a focus on the, first the family, the integral unit of society to support your family, not that leave them uh, and your posterity out to dry, but to provide for your family first and then look to the good of the society and the good of others. He gives a few more examples there, but for the sake of time, we'll move on. Question, 
what rule must we observe in lending? So we're talking about lending or giving loans. Answer, thou must observe whether thy brother hath present or probable or possible means of repaying thee. Sounds obvious. If there be none of these, thou must give him according to his necessity rather than lend him as he requires requests. If he hath present means of repaying thee, thou art to look at him not as an act of mercy, but by way of commerce, wherein thou art to walk by the rule of justice. But if his means of repaying thee be only possible or probable, then he is an object of thy mercy, and thou must lend him through, though there be danger of losing it. Deuteronomy 15, 7-8, If any of thy brethren be poor, thou shalt lend him sufficient. So he was making the distinguish, distinguishing characteristics between uh, a loan for just commerce, business, a business proposition or economic means, and the difference between that and actually extending grace to somebody, whereas they might not be able to repay you. So he was laying out the difference there. And bear in mind that his focus was largely economic. He actually started a, John Winthrop actually started a shipping company, I believe, when he, um, after they landed. And so a lot of these principles, he was speaking to that because that, that was a big focus of why they landed at the Massachusetts Bay Colony was for trade. So as we continue, what rule must we observe in forgi the forgiving of debt? Whether thou didst lend by, by way of commerce or in mercy, if he hath nothing to pay thee, thou must forgive except in a cause where thou hast surety or a lawful pledge, or if somebody is under contract, then they are obligated to pay. Deuteronomy 15:1-2. Every seventh year the creditor was to quit that which he lent to his brother. If he were poor, as appears in verse 4, save when there shall be no poor with thee, or when there was no more poor among them, that they did not apply. In all these, in like cases, Christ gives a general rule in Matthew 7, 12. Whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye the same to them. So it calls for our forgiveness there of debts. We must forgive it. It's better to forgive than to hold malice against our brother if he couldn't repay them for the good of, of uh, this, the new world, the society that they were to set up. Question, what rule must we observe and walk in in cause of community of peril? In other words, for the survival and the sake of the community at hand. Um, I th think he's speaking of the body or the church, the community, the Christian society, and what are the needs of the body for the survival of it. It's the same as before. The applications are the same, but, for, but with more enlargement towards others, less respect towards one, less, in less respect towards ourselves and our own right. Hence it was that the primitive church, in the primitive church, they sold all, and they had all things in common. And this was in a time of persecution, he's saying. These are extraordinary circumstances in which they sold all things and had all things in common. Neither did man say that which he possessed was his own. Likewise, in their return out of captivity, because the work was great for the restoring of the church and the danger of enemies was common to all, Nehemiah directs the Jews to liberality and readiness to remit their debts to their brethren or forgive their debts to their brethren and disposing liberally to such as wanted, and stand up upon their dues, which they might have demanded of them. Thus did some of our forefathers in times of persecution in England, saying they went to extraordinary means for the sake of the community, of the survival of the body of Christ at that time. They went to extraordinary means of giving everything they had to pool their resources to survive. And that's what he was getting at. I mean, bear in mind still that we're heading off into a wilderness several thousand miles away to <laughs> hack out timber and build homes and try to start a whole new economic system in a whole different place. It may as well have been jumping onto a different planet. And so did many of the and so did many of our faithful uh, of the faithful of other churches, whereof we kept an honorable remembrance of them. And it is to be observed that both in scriptures and latter stories of the churches that such as have been most bountiful to the, to the poor saints, especially in those extraordinary times and occasions, God hath left them highly commended to posterity, as an example of Zacchaeus or Cornelius, Dorcas, the bishop of Hooper, and Cutler of Brussels and diverse others. Those are examples he was giving. 
Observe again that the scripture gives no caution to restrain any from being over-liberal in this way or from giving too much, but all men to the liberal and the cheerful practice hereof by the sweeter promises as to instance for one for many. Isaiah 58, 6 through 9 states, Is not this the fast I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to take off the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke, to deal to deal thy bread to the hungry and bring the poor that wander into thy house when thou seekest seest the naked to cover him and when and then thy thy light break forth as the morning and thy health shall grow speedily thy righteousness shall go before god and the glory of the lord shall embrace thee and thou shalt call and the lord shall answer thee etc and from chapter 2 verse 10 if thou pour out thy soul to the hungry, then shall thy light spring forth out of the darkness, and the Lord shall guide thee continually and satisfy thy soul in drought and make fat thy bones. And thou shalt be like a watered garden, and they shalt be of thee that shall build the old waste places, etc. On the, most co- <clears throat> on the contrary, most heavy courses are laid upon, heavy curses, sorry, are laid upon such as are straightened, or resist the Lord and his people. Judges 5.23, when he said, Cursed ye morose, because they came not to help the Lord. He shutteth the ears from hearing the cry of the poor. He shall cry and not be heard. And in Matthew 25, Go ye cursed into everlasting fire, etc. And I was hungry and ye fed me not. Second Corinthians 9.6, another example, He that soweth sparingly shall reap sparingly. Now, having set forth the practice of mercy according to the rule of God's law, so he's referring to what he was talking about, having mercy for their very survival, it will be useful to lay open the grounds of it, also being the other part of the commandment, that is, the affection from, from which this exercise of mercy must arise, saying, this, having this mercy, we can't simply just command it, It's got to come from the heart. It has to be from the heart, and how does that happen? The apostle tells us that love is the fulfillment of the law. Not that it is enough to love our brother, and so no further, but in regard of the excellency of his parts, giving any motion to the other as the soul to the body, and and the power it hath to set forth the faculties at work in the outward exercise of this duty. So the way to draw men, what he's saying is the way to draw men to the works of mercy is not by force of argument. You can't tell somebody you have to be merciful simply because you're supposed to. But what he was saying was that true acts of mercy are from the heart and are a necessary outflow of when we fulfill the law of God and when we obey his commandments. It will necessarily follow that our hearts will be transformed and desire to help others and to unify the the body in the bond of peace is what he was getting at so he's saying true liberty i think comes from fulfilling the law of god the law of god brought liberty to them that was the true source of it the definition which the scripture gives us of love is this love is the bond of perfection and this is a this is a i love this example first it is a bond or a ligament Secondly, it makes the work perfect. There is no body but consists of parts, and that which knits these parts together gives the body its perfection. So he's saying what holds the body parts together necessarily is what gives it perfection because it creates the whole body. Because it makes each part so contiguous to others as as thereby they do mutually participate with one another, both in strength and affirmity, in pleasure and pain, To instance, in the most perfect of all bodies, Christ and his church make one body. The several parts of this body considered a part before they were united were as disproportionate as much disordering as so many contrary qualities or elements. But when Christ comes and by his spirit and love knits all these parts, all of us, all the people on board ship, hear all of our abilities and and gifts, knits all these parts to himself, and each to other, it is become the most perfect and best proportioned body in the world. In Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, Christ, by whom all the body being knit together by every joint for the furniture thereof, 
according to the effectual power which is in the measure of every perfection of parts, a glorious body without spot or wrinkle. The ligaments hereof being Christ or his love, for Christ is love. 1 John 4, 8. So this definition is right. Love is the, perfect, is the bond of perfection. So he's exhorting love one towards another for their, the means of their survival and bringing the body together in unity. From hence we may uh, frame these conclusions. First, all true Christians are of one body in Christ. 1 Corinthians 12. Ye are the body of Christ and members of their part. All the parts of this body being thus united are made so contiguous in a special relation as they must needs partake of each other's strength and infirmity, joy and sorrow, weal and woe. If one member suffers, all suffer with it. If one be poor, all rejoice with it. Secondly, the ligaments of this body which knit together are love. Thirdly, the body can be perfect, which no body can be perfect, which wants its proper ligament. Or if a body or a body of believers has not love, they are not perfect and they will not be held together and survive. Fourthly, all the parts of this body being thus united are made so contiguous in a special relation that they must needs partake of each other's strength and infirmity, joy and sorrow, weal and woe, 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer with it. If one be in honor, all rejoice with it. He's repeating himself there. Fifthly, this sensitivity and sympathy of each other's conditions will necessarily infuse into each part a native desire and endeavor to strengthen, defend, and preserve and comfort the other. 1 John 3, 16. 1 John 3.16, we ought to lay down our lives for our brethren. In Galatians 6.2, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Again, there, being sensitive to the body's needs and the needs of the body as a whole will necessarily instill a desire to defend, preserve, and comfort each other. Again, I think, I think, I keep thinking he's going through his head at this time, might be like, oh man, I hope this works. It's just like, we've got to be able to survive. And, and, uh, but the most amazing and encouraging thing to me is just through all of this, he's just like, if we have not the scripture, if we have not the word of God and his law, we have nothing. And we will die out there in the wilderness. And many of them did. They lost about 200 in the first year. And, you know, and it was because of selfless acts of John Winthrop himself and others coming together for their necessary survival that the Massachusetts Bay Colony even survived the first year. It was because this message was put into practice for their very survival. Okay. For patterns we have, or examples, we have that first of our Savior, who out of his goodwill in obedience to his Father became a part of this body, and being knit, uh, knit with it in the bond of love, found such a native sensitivity of our infirmities and sorrows as he willingly yielded himself to death to ease the infirmities of the rest of his body and so healed their sorrows. From the like sympathy of parts did the apostles and many thousands of saints lay down their lives for Christ. Of Epaphroditus he speaketh of in, in uh, Philippians, or Paul, I think he was saying, speaking of in Philippians 2, 25-30, that he regarded not his own life, to do him service. So Phoebe and others who were called the servants of the church, now it is apparent that they served not for wages or by constraint, but out of love. They, like we, shall find in the histories of the church in all ages the sweet sympathies of affection, which was in the members of this body, one towards another, their cheerfulness in serving and suffering together, how liberal they were without repining, harbors without grudging and helpful without reproaching and all from hence, because they had fervent love amongst them, which only makes the practice of mercy constant and easy. The next consideration is how love comes to be wrought or formed. Adam in his first estate was a perfect model of mankind in all their generations, and in him this love was perfected in regard of the, ha of the habit. But Adam himself rent from his creator, rent all his posterity, his children, his seed, us, also one from another. Hence it comes that every man born with this principle in him to love is born 
with this principle in him to love and to seek himself only. So he's getting at the sin nature in man. He's pointing towards something that must override that which we are all born with, and that is a sin nature in man. Because we are born with it, from, from Adam, we have to find a way to overcome the sin nature for our very survival. Because thus it will lead to selfishness and the collapse of society. Um... Every man is born with this principle in him to love and seek himself only, and thus a man continueth till Christ comes and takes possession of the soul and infuseth another principle, love to God and our brother. And this latter, having continual supply from Christ as head and root, by which he is united, gets predominant in the soul, so by little and little expels the former. First John 4, 7, Love cometh of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God so that this love is the fruit of the new birth, and none can have it but the new creature. He's speaking of sanctification. Those of us who are called, according to his name as the elect, will have necessarily our sin nature sanctified out of us, little by little it expels it, as he says in here. Now, when this quality is thus formed in the souls of men, it works like the spirit upon the dry bones. In Ezekiel 37, 7, bone came to bone. It gathers together the, the scattered bones of perfect old, or perfect old man Adam and knits them into one body again in Christ, key, in Christ, whereby a man is become again a living soul. The third consideration is concerning the exercise of this love, which is twofold, inward and outward. The outward hath been handled in the former preface of this discourse, so we've already, had, uh, we've already spoken towards that. From unfolding, the other, from unfolding the other, we must take in our way that maxim of philosophy, similis simile gaudet, which is Latin for like takes pleasure in like. He's speaking to something in the character of Christ. This, he said, this is the cause why the Lord loves the creature so far as it hath any of his image in it. He loves his elect, those of us who are called, he loves his elect because they are like himself. He beholds them in his beloved son. So as we are created in the image of Christ, as his called and as his elect, we are reflections of his beloved son. Therefore, he loves us and takes pleasure in us. That's what that Latin phrase was getting at, that maxim of philosophy that he was speaking to. That it just sounds cool, you know, to speak in Latin. I love this example here. He gives, uh, since we have so many mothers in the group, of... Uh, Unconditional love towards one. And so a mother loves her child because she thoroughly conceives the resemblance of herself in it. Thus it is between the members of Christ. Each discerns by the work of the Spirit his own image and resemblance in another. And therefore cannot but love him as he loves himself. Now when the soul, which is of a sociable nature, finds anything like to itself, it is like Adam when Eve was brought to him. She must be one with himself. This is flesh of my flesh, saith he, and bone of my bone. So the soul conceives a great delight in it. Therefore she desires nearness and familiarity with it. She hath a great propensity to do good, to do it good and receive such content in it as fearing the miscarriage of her beloved. She bestows it in the inmost closet of her heart. She will not endure that it shall want any good thing or be in want of any good thing which she can give it. If by occasion she be withdrawn from the company of it, she is still looking towards the place where she left her beloved. She heard it groan, and she is with it presently. If she find it sad and, dis and discon disconsolate, she sighs and moans with it. She hath no such joy as to see her beloved merry and thriving, if she see it wrong, she cannot bear it without passion. She sets no bounds to her affection, nor hath any thought of reward. She finds recompense reward enough. So there's enough reward in just the exercise of her love towards it. He gives a few other examples about Jonathan and David, Ruth and Naomi. 
the sake of time, we'll move over those that I had planned. Okay, from the former considerations arise these conclusions. First, this love among Christians is a real thing. It's not imaginary. Secondly, this love is absolutely necessary to the being of the body of Christ. He's getting, uh, getting more of that. As the sinews and other ligaments of, the, ligaments of the natural body are to the being of that body, so love in Christ is absolutely necessary to the being of the body. Thirdly, this love is, divine, is a divine spiritual nature, free, free, active, strong, courageous, permanent, undervaluing all things beneath its proper object and of all the graces. This makes us nearer to resemble the virtues of our Heavenly Father. So, the exercise of this love one towards another makes us, he's saying, makes us more like Christ towards one another. That's what he's getting at. It makes us near, nearer to resemble the virtues of our Heavenly Father. Fourthly, it rests in the love and welfare of its beloved. For the full certain knowledge of those truths concerning the nature, use, and excellency of this grace, that which the Holy Ghost hath left recorded in 1 Corinthians 13, may give satisfaction which is needful for every true member of this lovely body of the Lord Jesus to work upon their hearts by prayer, meditation, continual exercise at least of the special influence of this grace till Christ be formed in them and they in him, all in each other knit together by this bond of love. He's saying the goal of this love is for the true and total fulfillment of every member of the body of Christ, every member of that society to be in Christ and eventually glorified in perfection in our glorified state in glory. It rests now to make some application of this discourse by the present design which by the present design which gave the occasion for writing it. Here are four things to be propounded. First, the persons propounded or considered. First, the persons. Secondly, the work. Thirdly, the end. And fourthly, the means. For the persons, we are a company, of, a company professing ourselves fellow members of Christ. So we're saying we are all believers here in Christ, in which he's speaking to their group on board ship, and he's calling his group to be knit together in love for this new society again. Um, as followers in Christ, in, in which respect only, though we were absent from each other many miles and had our employments as far distant, yet we ought to account ourselves knit together by the bond of love and live in exercise of it. If we would have comfort of our being in Christ, this was the notorious practice of Christians in former times. So he's saying, though we were separated, one was of this occupation on, from this region, one of us was from here, we united under a common goal to form a new society, to come to be knit together in love in this body of Christ. And that love bonds us together no matter the bounds, the occupation, the economic station, the wealth, the poor, it doesn't matter. We are all together as one for our own survival here in the new world. Secondly, for the work at hand, it is by mutual consent through a special overvaluing providence or overarching providence, sovereignty of God, and a more than an ordinary approbation or approving of the churches of Christ to seek out a place of cohabitation. They're looking for a new civilization. Uh, seek out a place of cohabitation and concertship under a due form of government, government both civil and ecclesiastical. So they're looking for a new land to form a new government to govern their society both under civil law and ecclesiastical, or God's law. In such cases as this, the care of the public, and this is important here, the care of the public must oversway all private respects, by which not only conscience but mere civil policy doth bind us. For it is a true rule, for it is a true rule that particular estates cannot subsist in the ruin of the public. It's important to note here it sounds like he's giving a case for strong centralized government when he says we must see the needs of the, you know, uh, or the care of the public must oversway the private respects. And that's not what he's saying. What he was, he's still in the context of their godly society. He's still speaking within the context of the body of Christ, a society that is a reflection of the body of Christ. 
So rather, he is making the case that it, if society as a whole doesn't abide by God's law and order, how can an individual believer hope to subsist or survive if it's not supported by a like-minded society? If a society is not bound together by God's law, it will fail also. That's, why, that's what he's saying. That's why they left England. Society did not support them. It did not support uh, their beliefs, their convictions of, the, of, of their belief in the word of God. So he's saying that the needs of the public oversway the private needs because that's, their, that's the means of their survival. It's a, it's a society that necessarily reflects um, God's law. And therefore, that's what's a unifying force there. That's how they survive. Thirdly, the end is to improve our lives, to do more service to the Lord. The comfort and increase of the body of Christ, whereof we are members, that ourselves and our posterity, or our seed, our children, may be the better, may be the better preserved from the common corruptions of this evil world, to serve the Lord and work out our salvation under the power and purity of his holy ordinances. Again, he's speaking of what they plan, the plan for their new society that they're creating in the new world. It's a place of religious freedom for them <clears throat> to govern their lives as they see fit and to govern themselves in accordance with the law of God. Fourthly, for the means whereby this must be effected. They are twofold, a conformity with the work um, and the end we aim at, the end being the new world under God. Um, these we see are extraordinary, or their responsibilities are extraordinary. Therefore, we must not contend ourselves with the usual, usual ordinary means or what we're used to doing. What, whatsoever we did or ought to have done we, when we lived in England, the same must we do and more also where we go. That which the most of their churches maintain as truth and profession only. We must bring into familiar and constant practice as in this duty of love, we must love brotherly without dissimulation or unlikeness. We must love one another with a pure heart fervently. We must bear one another's burdens. And we must look not only uh, on our own things, but also on the needs of our brethren. He's saying we have to walk the walk. It's no longer time to just speak these things in our churches as we did in England, or say them in profession only, we're actually putting them into practice because we're walking into completely uncharted territory. That's what he's saying. And so their job, in their, their goal in receiving religious freedom by going to the new world was going to be that much harder than what they're used to. He's like, you think we're being persecuted here? We're going to face death, destruction, and poverty if we don't... And, the only way to survive that is an adherence to God's law, but it was worth it. It was worth it to walk the walk, and that's what he was saying there. He's like, prepare yourselves. This is going to be hard. And it was. 200 dead the first year. But they saw it as an adventure. Called it an errand, an errand into the wilderness for the glory of Christ. And in the Mayflower Compact, they spoke of one of their... One of their chief ambitions also was the propagation of the gospel to the indigenous people as well. And so they formed covenants with them. Neither must we think that the Lord will bear with such failings at our hands as, as he doth from those among whom we lived. And that what for these three reasons, and this is why he's saying this is why we are held to a higher standard. First, in regard of more the more near bond of marriage between him and us, wherein he hath taken us to be his after a most strict and peculiar manner, which will make him the more jealous of our love and obedience. So he tells the people of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for your transgressions. He's holding his elect to a higher standard here. And he's saying, you have my law, you have... And so, therefore, you will be held to a higher standard of righteousness if we indeed profess his truth. So he's calling them, we are called to a higher place. We are called to higher standards. Secondly, because the Lord will be sanctified in them that come near him. We know that there 
were many that corrupted the service of the Lord, some setting up altars before his own, others offering both strange fire and strange sacrifices also, yet there came no fire from heaven, or other sudden judgment upon them, as did upon Nadab and Abihu, who yet we think did not sin presumptuously. So he was speaking to the two men who offered profane fire before the tabernacle of the Lord in the wilderness. They were consumed by God and struck down. They and their seed were killed. And they were saying, it, you may, there may be an argument there to say that they didn't even do it intentionally. But once again, they were held to a much higher standard in accordance with his law because they had the law of God. They knew better. They were without excuse because he said, this is the way, walk ye in it. Thirdly, when God gives a special commission, he looks at it, looks to have it strictly observed in every article. When he gave Saul a commission to destroy Amalek, he intended with him upon certain, uh, certain articles. And because he failed in one of the least, and that upon a fair pretense, or he had an excuse for it, he had a reason why he disobeyed, but he lost him the kingdom which should have been his by reward if he had observed the commission. So he lost, Saul lost his commission because he disobeyed. He knew better. Samuel told him to obey is better than sacrifice. And now we come to the closing call that he gave. And this is just epic. I love this part. Um, I'm not texting here. Going to Webster's 1828 dictionary. He says, Thus stands the cause between God and us. Thus stands, here we are. This is where we're going. This is what we are doing. And this is the cause between God and us. We are entered into a covenant with Him for His work. And I started to think about the word covenant, what it means today, and what it meant to them. So many times in the digression of society, well, in almost every case, as a society digresses and rejects the principles of the Word of God, so goes their language. It's an interesting concept, but it's happened to society after society. They lo lose the ability to speak and to understand and to have their intellects reconcile with the Word of God and with governing principles. The Mayans had a developed written language. They forgot how to write it the more they transgressed. It was the Mayans, correct? Or was it the Aztecs? The Aztecs. Yeah, they had a written advanced language, and the more they digressed into paganism, they forgot how to write their own language. They couldn't even teach it to their children because they digressed from, from any principles of governance, entered into total hedonism. So I looked at the word covenant. What did it mean to John Winthrop? Or what could I most closely think it meant to them um, today? So... I love the Webster's 1828 Dictionary. You go to one of our founders, and this is what they thought, at least at that point. This is what they were thinking when they heard the word covenant. In relation to theology, the covenant of works is that implied in the commands, prohibitions, and promises of God. The promise of God to man that man's perfect obedience should entitle him to happiness. This do and live, that do and die. The covenant of, re of redemption is the mutual agreement between the Father and Son respecting the redemption of sinners by Christ. The covenant of grace is that the covenant of grace is that by which God enables to bestow salvation on men upon the condition that man shall believe in Christ and yield obedience to the terms of the gospel. In church affairs, a solemn agreement between the members of a church, and this is what they're doing there that they will walk together according to the precepts of the gospel in brotherly affection. And that was the definition right out of the dictionary um, in Webster's 1828. Okay, so we are entered into a covenant with that definition in mind for his work. We have taken out a commission. The Lord hath given us leave to draw our own articles. It's saying the Lord has set us free from tyranny to go to a new world, to draw our own articles, to reform a society and a new government, to govern ourselves. In many ways, we are like this today. Sometimes when we are dealing with governments that blaspheme the principles of God or deal with an apostate church among us, we many times, as we are striving to know the truth of God, feel like we are in the wilderness ourselves here, even in this little body or those in the community, other churches feels like we're going against, the, going against the flow. 
The Lord hath given us leave to draw our own articles. We have professed to enterprise these and those accounts upon these and those ends. We have hereupon besought him of favor and blessing. Now if the Lord shall please to hear us and bring us in peace to the place that we desire, which would be the Massachusetts Bay Colony, then hath he ratified this covenant and sealed our commission and will expect a strict performance of the articles contained in it. But if we shall neglect the observation of these articles and not obey, which are the ends which we have propounded, and, dis, and dissembling, our, uh, dissembling with our God shall fall to embrace this present world and prosecute our carnal intentions, seeking great things for ourselves and our posterity, the Lord will surely break out in wrath against us and be revenged of such a people. So he's saying, if we disobey his word, like in Psalm 28, when he gives all those references, like, I gave you these principles, I gave you these promises, I gave you the way, walk ye in it. If not, then we receive the covenant judgments written in his word. So, uh, let's see, the Lord will surely break out his wrath against us and be revenged of such a people and make us known know the price of the breach of such a covenant. So what will it cost us if we break this covenant with Almighty God? What is it going to cost this land? Because we broke that covenant long ago. Now the only way to avoid this shipwreck, fitting metaphor, and to provide for our posterity is to follow the counsel of Micah, to do justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. For this end we must be knit together. In this work, as one man, we must entertain each other in brotherly affection. We must be willing to abridge ourselves of our superfluities or unnecessary things for the supply of others' necessities. We must uphold a familiar commerce together in all meekness, gentleness, patience, and liberality. We must delight in each other, make others' conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work as members of the same body. So shall we keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us as His people. And we and will command a blessing upon us in all our ways, so that we shall see, shall see much more of His wisdom, power, goodness, and truth than formerly we have been acquainted with or that we have ever seen before. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us. Then ten of us, shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies when he shall make us a praise and a glory that men shall say of succeeding plantations, may the Lord make it like that of New England. So he's saying we will be set up as an example that men will look to that memorial stone of New England. Let us look back to New England as a memorial stone and say, let the Lord make us like that. For we must consider that we shall be a city upon a hill the eyes of all people are upon us, so that we shall if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. Has that not come upon us today in so many ways? We shall open the mouths of, open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the ways of God, and all professors for God's sake. We shall shame the faces of many of God's worthy servants and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us till we be consumed out of the good land whither we are going. And to shut this discourse with that exhortation of Moses, that faithful servant of the Lord in his last farewell to Israel in Deuteronomy 30, Beloved, there is now set before us life and death, good and evil, in that we are commanded this day to love the Lord our God and to love one another and to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments and His ordinance and His laws and the articles of our covenant with Him that we may live and be multiplied and that the Lord our God may bless us in the land whither we go to possess it. But if our hearts shall turn away so that we will not obey, 
but shall be seduced and worship other gods, our pleasure and profits, and serve them. It is propounded upon us this day, we shall surely perish out of the land, out of the good land, whither we pass over this vast sea to possess it. Can we all stand here to say this last part together? If we would, please. Let's say this together. Therefore, Therefore, let us choose life that we and our seed may live by obeying His voice and cleaving to Him. For He is our life and our prosperity. Amen. So closes the reading of John Winthrop's sermon, a model of Christian charity, and my summary thereof, if it, for what it's worth. Thanks.